got your Bibles out, turn to Isaiah 64. We need revival. Our churches need revival. Our families need revival. Our cities, our towns, our neighborhoods, our homes all need revival. Now, we've seen some revivals, what seemed to be revivals recently. All the way back in 2011 at our own college, Bethel University up in Mishawaka, they, uh, it was on uh, February 16th, they had a chapel service. And uh, some of the, all of a sudden it, it seemed like God was moving and many of the faculty, many of the students answered God's call, recommitted their lives to Christ and the staff. Just recently in February down at Asbury University in Tennessee, there was what seemed to be a revival for many, many weeks. And then just not just a few weeks ago, about, about a month ago, Auburn University in Alabama experienced the same, same thing. Now, these re- revivals that, that people were calling a revival did some amazing things for the places that they occurred. They benefited those that were involved. Even those who came from out of town benefited from going there and seeing what they assumed was God moving. But we haven't seen what I call a comprehensive revival since the Great Awakening of the 1730s and 1740s. That was a time when the preachers would go out amongst the the towns because remember it was just the beginning. Uh, We didn't even have the American Revolution yet. But throughout England and throughout Europe and into the, into the Americas, there was a revival through the whole nation. And then again, the Second Great Awakening was in 1795 to 1835. There was another revival. And we've been trying to, we've been trying to have revivals. In fact, you know, I was raised in the Nazarene Church. And in the Nazarene Church, every year you have a revival. You bring in a special preacher, a special teacher, that person gives a dynamic message, usually over multiple days. But is that revival? The hope is that it revives us. It revives our faith. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. There's nothing wrong with having those, quote, revivals. But the problem is we must understand that a revival cannot be forced. You cannot force a revival. There's a no amount of good, amazing preaching. We could have Billy Graham come back from life and he could do he could stand here and preach, and we still couldn't have a revival. No amount of preaching, no amount of military force, no economic upturn or downturn, no elected official can bring about revival. Because revival is the sovereign work of God Almighty. It is God who brings revival, not us. It cannot be forced. So we're going to look at Isaiah 64 today. I want to give you the context of what's been going on. This, at this point in time, uh, the, God's people, the Israelites have, from Judah, have been carried off into captivity. They are now in Babylonian captivity. And, and we don't quite understand that. I could share a story where you might, but I don't want to share that story right now, but but you might hope you understand it. But when you're carried into captivity, you are powerless. You're a prisoner. You're no longer able to do what you want to do. You are captured. 
And they had to make the long march from Jerusalem all the way back to Babylon. You think from Israel all the way out to, to, the, to Iraq, where Babylon was. Iraq today, not then, wasn't there then, but they're in deep despair. The, the closest thing I can think of in American history would be the Trail of Tears that they, we forced upon the North American Indians. We made them leave their, their native lands and had them march out west to Indian reservations. It's called the Trail of Tears for a reason. Israel experienced, is experiencing their Trail of Tears. Now, I would say that the church today is in a very similar position. We've been taken captive by the world. We've been taken captive by our own flesh. We've been taken captive by Satan himself. We're discouraged. People don't want to attend church anymore. And many who say they're Christians would rather sit and have pajama church where they sit in front of their TV on Sunday mornings and and drink their lattes or their coffees and and watch a TV show. And and, and it's great. I mean, if you can't make it to church, it's the next best best thing. The problem is there are thousands of people who claim to be Christian who can make it to church and don't go. Or you have churches that are are more, uh, they kind of cater to what people want instead of what they need. And that doesn't mean they're big or small. Both churches do the same thing. We've become captive to the trappings of this world. We've lost hope that there's ever going to be a revival in the church again, or even in our own lives. But I would say that, and I would argue that revival is possible. But we have to first be made right with God before revival can happen. So why do we see it today? Why why are there not revivals constantly today? I mean, you think about it, Revival should happen when things are difficult, when persecution is high, and we have to trust in God. So we, we, we get that sense of who God is, and we want to we want to revive ourselves. We want to be strong in the Lord. It's not because churches are disunified, because they are. It's not because we're ignoring evangelism, because there's a lot of churches out there that are that are are doing a lot of evangelism. That's not why we don't have revival. It's not because our churches have turned inward in order to fill the seats of the, of the building rather than turning outward to affect the community because that's happening too. I mean, we, we could fix all the problems of the church, every single one of them, and guess what? We would still not see revival. So why are we not experiencing revival? Well, the reason is because of what is the cause of revival. Revival is the cause, is caused by God coming down. Look what it says in Isaiah 64. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. See, revival is when we meet God Almighty. 
And he does amazing things that has no other explanation. And because of those things, because of what we see God doing, the world says there's something going on. When the, the first inklings of the Asbury revival that happened in, this, in February, when that first started, people were saying there's something going on here. So people would start coming in. Then they had to tell people, don't come. Do not come to this town because we can't handle the people. And they started having different sessions all over the area because they could not handle the people at the campus. It was impossible. Something was happening. The world, it was on the news. Now, were people able to deny it and say it was just a bunch of crazy Christians getting together? Yeah, there were a lot of people who said that. But there was something about it. See, God... In, in this, this time in Isaiah, he's, he's asking God to do something for us that the world will say, wow, there's something different. But see, most of the time when you and I are asking God, when we're praying God, we, we go to him and we say, Lord, will you do this? Can you do this for me? Can you do that? We need. We, I pray for this person. I pray for that person. And we're supposed to do that. It says we're supposed to lay our petitions to God. We're supposed to ask him for things. The problem with that is when we always do that, we are seeking his hand. And in order for revival to happen, we need to seek his face. We need to desire God and ask him to come down. I, 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 love, I love meeting people face to face. We love to stand and talk to somebody. You know, you can talk over the internet. You can, you can even with Zoom or online, you can do all kinds of things. But I'm sorry, it's not the same thing as standing in front of somebody and talking to them, seeing their whole body and their whole body language, feeling their presence, being able to reach out a hand and touch them and say, you know, I love you, I'm praying for you. But online is just is a, is a bad substitute. See, so, so we need, we want God to come down. And God loves to come down. Think about this. He came down in Jesus Christ. And he made it very clear for us to be reconciled to God. He came down at Pentecost. And on that day, 3,000 people were added to the church. He came down during the Great, Great Awakenings. He came down in China. And, you know, It's estimated that uh, Protestant Christianity has grown 10% per year in China since 1979. And by the year 2030, there'll be more Protestant Christians in China than any place else in the world. God's coming down. He's still active. There are places in Africa. There's places in the Middle East where God is coming down. And he's moving in amazing ways. And while this is all happening, American Christianity seems to be drifting into what I call historic inconsequentiality. We've become inconsequential to our to our our communities, to our culture. And, I, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not a believer in what's called the Seven Mountain Mandate where we're supposed to go and take over all these institutions and we're supposed to usher in the kingdom of God. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that's what we're going to do. We're to pray for our leaders. We're to get involved when we can. But we're not to take over the world. That's not coming until Christ actually physically comes back down. I mean, I want God to come down on our church. I want him to be 
present in our church. I want him to come down on, upon me and my family. I want him to come down on our household. I want him to come down in our neighborhood. I want him to come down in our city. I want him to come down on all of you. I want you to experience God face to face. We need to seek him. And when we seek him face to face, we're going to have revival in our lives and in our church and in our homes and our Sunday school classes and our small groups and even in our own lives. Because the problem is today, we live in a world that is often feels very distant from God. Evil seems to prevail. That's why I've said don't, uh, don't keep watching the news because you're going to get depressed because there's nothing but bad news. The whole point of the bad news is to get you to come back and watch more bad news. We must stop crying out to God and we need to start seeking His face and asking Him to rend the heavens and to come down into our lives, into our communities, into our nations, into our homes, into our church. We need to ask His presence to be here and for, him to, for us to see Him face to face. Now I know, if God was standing in front of me, I would not be able to look at Him because you, nobody can look upon God and live. If God appeared here right this moment, we would be all be face down on the ground bowing. but he would be here. We want him to come down. So why do we need the revival? Look what it said. It said, when God comes down, the mountains quake and the nations tremble. And God's name will be known to all. Everyone will know the name of God. That is the purpose of revival. It's not just so that the church will be revived and that the church will be, well, well, people in the church will all of a sudden be super Christians. That's not the reason for revival. The reason for revival is that God's name would be known. That's the purpose. Those that don't believe, those who are opposed to God, will be unable to deny the truth of God. And when we experience that kind of revival, the mountains that are in our lives, those strongholds, will be melting away, will quake and will go away. Those mountains that hinder the work of God will be washed away. The mountains of doubt, addiction, pride, bigotry, indifference, anger, all gone. When we see genuine revival, we're going to see something that cannot be explained. I love the unexplained. Ever since I was a kid, I remember um, in, in elementary school going to the library, and one of the first books I kind of grabbed to was books on UFOs. I love the whole stories about UFOs. If you come, to, and I haven't scheduled it yet, but we're going to have a, uh, another roundtable discussion, and the one, we, the one we voted on, the two that got the most votes were the World Economic Forum and Aliens. And we had, So probably this time we're going to talk about aliens. And how do we respond to it biblically? Because it's in the news all the time. I love the unexplained. But there will be no explaining away God when the revival happens. Look what happened at Pentecost. The disciples were so full of the filled with the Holy Spirit, they went down and there were all these Jews in Jerusalem because of, because of, of Pentecost. Because they were celebrating the giving of the first five books of the Bible. And they're from all over Rome. So they're all speaking in different languages. 
And the disciples come down and they start preaching and teaching in each of the individual languages of the people that they 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 hear that were there. And and those people and the disciples didn't know how to speak those things. They didn't know how to speak that language. But the people were hearing them in their own language. And they were amazed. Look what it says in Acts 2. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they are filled with new wine. They're saying they're drunk. It was early in the morning. Well, it's morning time. See, there are always going to be those people who say, Boy, what's God doing? And there's going to be those people that say, I don't believe any of it. God himself, Jesus himself could be standing in front of them, showing them his, they doubt even more than Thomas did. For some, true revival is going to bring Holy Spirit conviction, while others will mock the things of God. We see this in Revelation. There's a place where it says that when, when, the, when the people realize that Christ is coming, they'll actually gnaw their tongues. They, will, they just can't stand it. They don't want to believe. But in that time, when we have revival, evil in this world will shake at the presence of Almighty God. That's why we need to seek His face. And those who are unsaved will cry out for mercy. Acts 2.36 says, 2.37, I'm sorry, it says, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. After Peter begins to teach them what's going on, they're cut to the heart. And Peter said, to, and Peter and the rest, of, and said to Peter and the rest of the brothers, Brothers, what shall we do? Don't you wish that people would come up to you and say, I know you're a Christian, what do I need to do? I know you're a Christian, what do I need to do? The day's coming when that may happen. But until then, we need revival. We need to be passionate about, Christ, about our Christian walk. We need to be passionate about Christ. So the people will see it. We need to be revived daily. That's not all that's going to happen. Actually, when revival occurs, when God comes down, the righteous will rejoice that we have revival. Verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 64 says, From of old no one is heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you. There's no one like him. who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully work righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? See, God wants to meet us. He wants to come down to us. And when he does, we're going to rejoice. We're going to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. We rejoice when we see revival. I want to see it. I want to see the church, and not just this church, but all the churches, revived. I want to see it in my family. I want all of you to see it. I want God to meet His people and for us to have incredible joy. Now, if we're not having revival, then you've got to ask the question, what's preventing it? Well, the problem is, is that you and I have been corrupted by our sins. Our sins have corrupted us. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. He's saying it right there. <laughs> I'm waiting for Sam to get the slides caught up. Are they not working? Should be on slide 13. It's not working. Okay, that's fine. 
Here's what it says. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Ever think about yourself that way? We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, takes us away. Sin has corrupted us so deeply that even the righteous things in our life are actually filthy rags. By our self-righteousness, it's like a rag, like a leper's rag in the sight of God. The very thing we try to cover ourselves with is the very thing that defiles us and condemns us. And not only is our righteousness like a leper's rag, but our faithfulness is fading like a leaf. We're, we're, we're in this fall season now. You see the leaves are changing. I, you know, I, I cleaned the leaves off my front yard, and guess what? The next day, my front yard is full of leaves again. The leaves are fading. They're turning. They some, most, some of them are turning beautiful colors, but I don't think it's going to be nearly as beautiful as it has been years past. But they're falling. They're falling as the wind blows. See, we, we, we have a tendency to dress ourselves up, ourselves up in our self-righteousness. We look like we're doing good. We look, we look like we're doing the right thing. But when the wind comes, then all of a sudden we see all the problems in our lives, and in our families, in our finances, in our jobs. When the winds of trouble come, we're blown away and we're blown to the ground. And not only are we corrupted by our sins, but we also are complacent in our sins. Look at what it says in verse 7. It says, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Nobody calls on God. Now, he's using hyperbole here a little bit because I believe there probably were people in Israel who did call upon he did who called upon god and there are people who are faithful today but as a whole as a nation we're struggling our sins are consuming us they're eating us alive so when that happens god has to turn his face from us because he cannot look upon our sins our unrepented sins and we're no longer seeking his face. We're no longer protected by God. And now we're going to suffer because of our sins in this world. And if we don't repent of our sins, we're going to suffer in the world to come. And what happens many times with the pe- what people do is they blame God. Instead of blaming themselves. where They don't blame where it really belongs. It belongs on them, not on him. So what happens is we need to have prayer. Because prayer is what precedes revival. This is, this is how we seek His face. We seek His face in prayer. First, we have to recognize the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. Remember those, the talking about here about He is, you know, He's the potter, we're the clay. He makes us however He wishes. You know, He made us, and you know, the McDonald's makes us a little different when we don't eat like we should. But you think about that. He, he is sovereign over all things. We have to believe that God is who he says he is. Back in Isaiah 45, it says, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me and there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. 
that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Do you believe that? And if we truly believe this, this is going to lead us to surrender to God. That's, and that's one of the hardest things I think for us to do as believers is to actually surrender our lives to God. And it's not something you say, okay, um, I'm going to surrender to God right now and then go about your life. No, it's a moment-by-moment moment surrendering to God. You have to constantly surrender to God because your human nature is going to want to take over again. In verse 8 of Isaiah 64, it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Whether you are a believer or not, you are the work of God's hand. God doesn't want to be a place in your life. He doesn't just want a small place in your life. He doesn't even want prominence in your life. God demands preeminence in your life. He needs to be the ultimate in your life. You know, when Leonardo da Vinci had asked a friend of his to come and look at his masterpiece of The Last Supper, he says, I want, you to, I want you to tell me what you think about my painting. And his friend told him, wow, you know what really stands out is that cup. Is there a cup up there? You see a cup in front of Jesus? You want to know why? Because Leonardo took a brush and he painted over the cup. And he says, there's nothing that should be more important and more outstanding in this picture than my Lord and Savior. That's why there's no cup in front of Jesus. Because his friend said, there's a cup there. That, that cup is what really stands out. Jesus must be supreme in our lives. Nothing ever should distract us from him. If it does, we have to get rid of it. Anything that keeps us from glorifying Christ must be eliminated from our lives. Because, see, we have a tendency to marginalize Christ. We're going to place, sometimes we place work, we place our hobbies. We may even place our family before Christ in our lives. But he deserves preeminence. In Colossians 1, Paul tells us, he is the image of the invisible God. He's talking about Christ. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He deserves preeminence in our lives. He doesn't just deserve to be number one. He deserves to be all. We not only must recognize God's sovereignty, but we also have to trust in his mercy. Verse 9 says, But not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. God wants to extend mercy. That's why he sent Christ. So that he could extend mercy. He'd rather forgive than condemn. God does not want to hold a grudge. He won't hold a grudge. He says, I, I remember your sins no more. No more grudge. He wants to forgive us. But he can't do that if we don't stop sinning. 
We have to repent. And repentance means to turn the other way. You're going this way, and you're going to repent. You're going to go the opposite way. We have to make that move, and then we are forgiven. See, the problem with many of our prayers is that we are unwilling to repent. Unwilling to turn away from those things that lead us away from God and get in the way of our relationship with Christ. It's like a spouse who is an adulterer and and refuses to give up their lover. That's what we do. We continue to pursue our sinful passions. We want God's mercy, but we don't want to give up our sins. We don't want to repent. And prayer without repentance is a farce. It's a lie. It's a stage show. It's nothing. Nothing more than a smokescreen to make us feel better about ourselves when in reality we need to repent. It makes us feel better about our wretchedness. God is able to touch us and restore us and revive us. Isaiah is not asking God not to discipline us. He's not saying, oh, Lord, don't send us into captivity. What he's asking is that the discipline that God's going to lay out on us that will be at a level that we deserve because we are his people. And what was once was can be again. Solomon wrote, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. What Psalmist is saying is, you know, the faith of a child is amazing. That's what we need to have. We need to remember the God of our youth. We need to remember that time when we accepted Christ, and we need to hang on to that, because life is going to make us dreary about it. We take no pleasure in it anymore. But we can always take pleasure in our childlike faith. The time when we experience God would be a time of revival. When we first answered the call of God on our hearts, and that was He was doing by the Holy Spirit, we have to remember that our time in this present day of unfaithfulness and, and long to return, and we need to long to return to that time. That time of that moment when we love God so much we were willing to give up everything for Him. And when Isaiah remembers what once was, in verses 9 to 12, he says, Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself of these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Isaiah is saying, all those beautiful things are gone. Remember your glory, God. Remember how God spoke from the temple. What a glorious time that was. He's asking God to do it again. And that is what revival is. When God comes down, and the question is, do we want to see it? Do we want to see it in our church? Do we want to see it in our lives? Maybe we don't. Maybe we've dressed ourselves up in our rags of self-righteousness, and we're like a dying leaf, and we don't even know it. God is waiting to come down. He's waiting for us to seek His face. You know, the greatest prayer that we can pray is for God to do His will, for His glory, in His way, by His gospel in our generation, and without any restraints. God can create newness out of ruins.
whether that's our church, our lives, our homes, our families, our nation, our towns. But we have to bow low before him and say, as far as I am concerned, Lord, don't restrain yourself at all. Have your way with me and with us freely and entirely.